When you hear the word revival, the word evokes for some a sense of wonder. If you've done any reading at all on past revivals, the thought of God doing those kinds of things is, it whets the appetite for more. We think back to the time of the great Methodist revivals of John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield. Think of the days in Scotland when John Knox preached boldly. In fact, he prayed, give me Scotland or I'll die. We think of Charles Finney in upstate New York when in 1830, one year alone, 30,000 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ. We think of the great evangelistic campaigns of Dwight Lyman Moody or Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, and others. For some who hear the word revival, it does not evoke wonder, but skepticism. They hear revival and they think con artist. They think leap of faith, the movie. They think of great emotionalism without total change. In fact, in some places, revivals are scheduled. I've seen signs in front of certain places that say, Revival, Sunday night through Friday night, 7.30 to 9 p.m. As if you can turn it on like a light switch, and then when Friday's up, it's gone, it's over. In the Bible, the word revival is only used, interestingly enough, one time. One time. The word revive, however, is found 20 times. It's usually in the form of a prayer. Psalm 80, revive us, O Lord. Um, Habakkuk chapter 3, revive your work in the midst of years. It's a great prayer to pray, by the way. Revive us, O Lord. Revive your work, O Lord, in the midst of years. But what does it mean, revival? I looked it up in Webster's Dictionary and found out that they said it is to return to consciousness or life, to become active or flourishing again, to restore from a depressed, inactive, or unused state. Very revealing. To speak of revival implies something's dead or dying. And it's almost to the point where it's useless and it needs to have new life injected once again into it. Well, given that definition, America needs a revival, wouldn't you say? Given that definition, this city could use real revival. Given that definition, the church of Jesus Christ needs real revival. There is in the realm of science the laws of thermodynamics. And the second law of thermodynamics is the law of entropy, which basically says that in a closed system over time, energy is diminished. The amount of heat energy diminishes, it's lost. So that things naturally tend toward decay and deterioration rather than order. I found that in the spiritual realm, there is also entropy. It seems that uh, people make commitments to Christ. They're very excited. They're on fire, burning up, you might say, for the Lord. Can't wait to get to church. Can't wait to worship. But then over time, there is the loss of that devotion. There's a slowing down, a deterioration, and a decaying process that often happens. I heard about a, a newly retired couple, and their lifelong dream was to 
buy a motorhome and travel across America, as many people do in the summertime. If you've ever tried to travel the interstates, they often clog them up. But this couple decided to get their motorhome, and the great feature that it had was cruise control. So they got in their motorhome and went up the Pacific coast, enjoying the beautiful view. And so the husband gets behind the wheel of the motorhome, drives it. After a while, he's tired, and he asks his wife to take over. Would you drive, honey, for me? I'm going to take a nap. He goes back and takes a nap. She assumes the power and the control of the vehicle, puts it in cruise control, goes down the road, enjoys it, has a great time. Well, after about an hour, she gets up to go back to go to the bathroom. You see, she thought that cruise control was the same as automatic pilot. That's what she told the California Highway Patrolman at the scene of the accident. The thing was absolutely totaled. The couple was fine. If, as a Christian, you think you can stick it in cruise control and just maintain, you need a revival. It's nothing like that. You you can't just reach a plateau and then just maintain. It's that constant and continual growth. Well, the nation of Israel had the same spiritual entropy problem. They tended toward deterioration. As soon as Joshua died and they entered the period known as the period of Judges, this deterioration overtook the nation time and time and time again. In fact, throughout the book of Judges and part into the book of Samuel, they entered into what scholars call the sin cycle, four phases of a cycle that's repeated over and over again in this Old Testament era. First was apostasy. They fell away from God. They left the worship of God. They started worshiping their own deal. Second phase, oppression. God let the enemies come in and overtake them. A third phase, repentance. They saw this oppression stuff is no good. And so they cried out to God. And then the fourth phase is deliverance. God delivers them from the hand of their oppressors, brings them back to Him, solidarity and worship, and then the cycle begins over again, unfortunately. Well, we open up Samuel and we find the nation is in the second phase of that sin cycle. Oppression. The Philistines are overtaking the land. They're oppressing the children of Israel for a period of years. And that's where the setting takes place as we open this book. What we want to look at today in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, the first uh, few verses, is revival and the four elements that brought revival. The first element is they were restless for God. Now let me paint the background picture for you. Um, We left off last time and we skipped several chapters for today's message. But the last time we left off, remember those two young whippersnappers, Hophni and Phinehas? They were the priests who were wicked in the tabernacle. Well, by now they're dead. And by now the Ark of the Covenant that was in the tabernacle where they worshipped has been stolen by the Philistines. When their dad Eli hears about it, he falls over backwards and he dies. Then after another period of time, the Ark is recaptured by the children of Israel and brought back into their camp But it doesn't go to Shiloh, where it once was. It doesn't go to Jerusalem, where it once will be. But it stays at a place called Kiriath-Jerim. You don't have to remember that. You don't have to name your children after that biblical name. But Kiriath-Jerim was a place down in Judah where the ark remained for 20 years. 
With that setting, we come now to verse 1. Then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That's an interesting description, is it not? They lamented after the Lord. They were weary. They were restless, as I've put it in our text, after the things of God. The Septuagint translation takes that verse and says, they looked back after the Lord. Another translation, they yearned after God. Another translation, they sighed after God. In other words, the children of Israel looked back to a time when they were much closer with God than they are at that present time. When the ark of God was in its place, when the worship of God was central, they remembered what it used to be like. It's not like that anymore. And their hearts are weary. Their souls are restless. They lament after the things of God. That's always the beginning of a revival. Did you know that? A restlessness takes place within the heart of an individual or better yet, a group of people. Something's missing, man. We've got to get that. What is it? And did you notice something else? It says, all the house of Israel lamented. It wasn't just a, a few folks. It wasn't just a pocket of God's people. All of the house of Israel longed after God. That's the beginning of revival. Leonard Ravenhill said, Evangelism affects the other fellow. Revival affects me. We live in an era in our country when people are very disillusioned. And I think this is good, actually. People are hungry. People are realizing with all of the materialism and prosperity of our country, it's not enough. It doesn't fill the void. Something's missing. They're burnt out on political promises that are never kept. They're burnt out on the cycles of our nation. They don't know what to do. And as Time and Newsweek and Life magazine have pointed out, there's a spiritual hunger. Listen to this little article from Psychology Today called On the Road to Happiness. Compared to 1960, the article begins, the America of today has doubled spending power. We also have twice as many cars per person, color TVs, VCRs, microwaves, answering machines, computers, and $12 billion a year worth of brand-name athletic shoes. But what has this economic growth meant for morale? Over the same period, depression rates have soared. Teen suicide tripled. Divorce, ra- divorce rates have doubled. The accumulation of material goods is at an all-time high, but so is the number of people who feel there is an emptiness in their lives. We are ripe for revival. Now, what about you? Can you look back to a time when you walked closer to God than you walk with Him today? Could it be said of some of you that you are actually lamenting after God? You remember a time when you were tender toward God, perhaps in your youth? you become a little crustier since then? It's not the same anymore? To the church at Ephesus... Jesus spoke the now familiar words, I have something against you. You have left your first love. 
What's interesting about that is Jesus first lists all the things he loves about them. You're hardworking, you're diligent, you're zealous. And having said all that, there's something against you, I have. You've left your first love. We're not as close as we used to be. There's not that intimacy of relationship anymore. That tenderness is gone. There's been an erosion that has taken place. That happens so often in married couples. We see it all the time. They come into counseling offices and they have their arms folded. That's the first giveaway that something is not right in the relationship. They kind of look at each other like that and then they go, I don't love him anymore. I don't love her anymore. Now what's interesting about this is that these are sometimes couples we have married. And we remember where they sat in that office and they had those little goo-goo eyes toward each other at one time. And we wonder, what happened? What happened to that young lady whose heart fluttered every time she heard his voice? Now she hears his voice and thinks, I wish he'd be quiet. What happened to the young man who couldn't wait to buy flowers for her and open the car door for her? Now he can't wait to slam the car door on her foot and find out what flowers he'll give at her funeral. What happened? Entropy. Spiritual entropy, deterioration happened. That flame of love on the altar of their hearts has, has gone out or is going out rapidly. They need it to be revived. Now what happens to married couples so often happens to Christians in their relationship with Christ. They leave their first love. The fire is intended. The flame isn't kept. Love has eroded. This is a process. It is not a blowout. It's a slow leak called backsliding. And the children of Israel knew they were there. They just remembered at one time in their history it was better than it is now. And so the first step is they were restless for God. The second one is they were receptive to God. They received the word of God. Verse 3, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you. Serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 3 opens up, Then Samuel spoke. I see a connection between verse 2 and 3. Then Samuel spoke. When? They lamented after God. Then Samuel spoke. Once their hearts were restless for God, It was a perfect time for Samuel to stand up and give the antidote, the solution, the prescription. And what did he speak? His opinion? No, he spoke the word of the Lord. And it was very, very straightforward. It wasn't a long message, but it it was to the heart. Um, Would you go back to chapter 3? Because it doesn't say he spoke the word of the Lord, but I would like you to see this in chapter 3. It's a summary statement of the messages that he gave to the nation. Chapter 3, verse 19, So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet, a spokesman for God. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. There's a progression going on in chapter 7. Step number one, they're restless for God. Step number two, the prophet arises, speaks the word of God, they respond. 
When a person begins being restless for spiritual things, it's at that point that the person is open to hear God's Word. So often people say, I don't want to hear that stuff, forget it. But get them to a point where something's wrong in their lives. And they sense their need. Suddenly they want to hear it all. Have you noticed how catastrophe brings people back to church? You remember the Gulf War? Every church in America swelled with people until it was over. C.S. Lewis was right when he said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The children of Israel are now roused. They had been oppressed by the Philistines. The ark has been captured. It's now back, but it's not in its place. And they realize something isn't right. Samuel says, I got a message. You want to stay right and get right with God, then this is what you must do. And we notice that he tells them the truth in verse 3. He didn't pull any of his punches. He gave them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now was not the time to entertain them. Now was not the time to talk about the building fund. Now was the time to feed their spiritual hunger and give them the Word of God. And so he tells them how to get right with God. Samuel was like a skilled physician. You know, I've noticed that physicians are not always popular. Sometimes physicians bring messages people don't want to hear. You go to the doctor. He runs a few tests. And he comes in and he says, "Um, you have cancer. And uh, we can lick this thing, but it's going to take some radiation and perhaps even surgery, and then you're going to have to be on medication. Like a skilled physician, Samuel becomes the preacher of the moment of their need. And he says, okay, you want to get right with God? Boom. Put away your false gods. Serve the Lord only. Prepare your hearts. I love that about him. I admire that about him. Because too much modern preaching is filled with personal opinion or feel-good philosophy and not the truth. Uh, I found an interesting statement I'd like to share with you. It's by the Archbishop of Canterbury at one time named George Carey who was giving his opinion, his statement of the church in England. He said, The church has become an old lady muttering platitudes through teethless gums. What an indictment. What a description, not only of the church in that country, but could we say the church in this country? Muttering platitudes through teethless gums. We must never be afraid to tell people the truth. You know why? It's one of the most loving things you could ever do for another person. Tell them the truth. Tell them how to fix the problem if there's a spiritual hunger. Goodness, we're giving instructions that are eternal instructions. If we get those wrong, they'll be lost. If somebody comes to Albuquerque and says, uh, how do you get to Los Angeles? What if you said, I-25 North? They'd be way out of their way, wouldn't they? They could eventually get there from there. But you've sent them in the wrong direction. Oh, but it's such a a pretty drive. But you tell them the truth. I-40 West. And we're giving spiritual instructions on how to get to heaven and how to escape judgment. And so it better be right, better be accurate. Revival then happens when somebody is restless for God, 
opens his or her or their hearts to the Lord, and the word of God is then given. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Last uh, year, last summer, and uh, again in the uh, wintertime, uh, several of us were in Scotland. And we were driving through some of its cities. One of the cities was Glasgow, as they say. Glasgow, Scotland. And I was told how wicked a city it was and the kind of activities that went on there and how the gospel was not greatly tolerated in that city. And then I found out that at one time, the city crest of Glasgow had a sign that was put everywhere through the city, on lampposts, at every corner. The city insignia was put up, and then the words, Let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of His Word and by the praising of His name. You know, as long as those two things are going on, it will flourish. But they decided after a period of time to take the last part of that off. And now it just says, let Glasgow flourish. An innocuous kind of a statement. Anybody would say, oh, that's very sweet and very tender. Not controversial like, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of his word and the praising of his name. Now it's just let it flourish. It can't flourish like it used to. You've taken away the word which will help heal the great hunger in people's hearts for the things of God. There's a third element in this revival in 1 Samuel 7. Not only are they restless for God, not only are they receptive to the word of God, they are called to renounce false gods. Look at verse 3 once again. Samuel spoke to the people. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then, that's what you've got to do, put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you. Revival must include removal. Revival isn't, oh yes, I have my life and I'd like to add God to it. God's a nice little element I'll place on my shelf of life. Rather, it's if God is who He said He is, then I see that this thing that I'm involved in may not be pleasing to God and I'll root that out of my life. Revival includes removal. This is the first part of repentance, by the way. Repentance means to turn from sin as you turn toward God. Now, in verse 4, they did that. The children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and they served the Lord only. Who are these Baals and Ashtoreths? These are foreign gods. These are deities worshipped by the Canaanites. Baal was sort of the, the big dog god. He was the chief god, the big monarch He controlled fertility. He controlled the rain and the sun, they thought. His female counterpart was Ashtoreth. She was the goddess of fertility, the goddess of love, the goddess of war. And part of the worship for the Baals and the Ashtoreths was through prostitution. Hence the temptation for many of the young men in Israel to get involved in worship, quote unquote, other than the worship of God. Samuel said, okay, you guys, you want to get right with God? You have a hunger for God? Here's the word of God. Put away those things. Get rid of them. And so, verse 4, they did. There's something else that I want to let you know they did. It's not mentioned in here. It's a couple chapters back. And we don't have time to get into it fully. But not only had they been worshiping false gods and goddesses that they needed to put away, they had idolized a sacred emblem in their own worship. 
the Ark of the Covenant. The reason the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen and then returned is the children of Israel had been fighting the Philistines. And they were losing every time they'd fight. And one of them had the bright idea, you know, we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and bring it into battle with us. If we only had the Ark, the Holy Ark, then we'd win our battles. So they brought the Ark into battle, and guess what? They lost, and the Ark got ripped off. You know why? They didn't need the Ark of God. They needed the God of the Ark. They had the icon of worship, but they did not have the God who inhabited His people. They left God and now they're taking this emblem and worshiping this icon rather than having a relationship with God. So we see then, not only did they long for God, not only were they receptive to the Word of God, but there was national repentance. They turned from something that was not right. Now evangelism is wonderful, but evangelism in itself is not revival. Once again, evangelism, as wonderful as it is, is not necessarily revival. Every time we see people coming forward or we have great crusade events, you might say, that's revival. Not necessarily. Billy Graham, after a successful crusade, was asked by the press, after many people came forward, he said, Mr. Graham, is this revival? He said quickly, no, it's not. For revival to happen, we expect, he said, to see two things. First, a sense, a new sense of the holiness of God among Christians. And number two, a new sense of the sinfulness of sin among Christians. You put those elements together and you see Christians hating sin and loving holy God and you'll see revival. We see both of those things in 1 Samuel chapter 7. They abhorred what God hated. They were willing to put it away and they turned back to God. That's repentance. Let me ask you a question. Is repentance very popular nowadays? To preach repentance? No. First of all, the world mocks the idea of repentance. (laughs) Repentance. They make a big joke out of it. A Saturday Night Live spoof. And secondly, Christians are embarrassed, I find, to use the word repentance. It's a good word. They're embarrassed. Oh, I don't want to tell people to repent. They may not like it. You know, I find Jesus was never embarrassed by the word. Did you know the very first message Jesus hit the streets in Israel with was the message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist came and said, repent, the kingdom of God is near. He wasn't embarrassed by it. I also find it interesting that Jesus, when he writes to churches in the book of Revelation 2 and 3, five times calls them to repent. You say, wait a minute. You saying, Skip, that Christians need to repent? I thought that's for unbelievers, right? Not Christians. Well, if Christians have idols in their lives, they need to repent. They need to turn from the idol. You say, well, I'm off the hook there. I don't have any of those little gods in my house that I worship. Listen, an idol is simply a replacement for God. Anything can replace God. Anything, any activity, any relationship, any possession that takes place of supreme devotion for God can be an idol and must be removed. A couple of authors wrote this in one of their books. Churches want to hear nice, optimistic messages free of the mention of sin or the call for repentance. 
Churches want nice, lean programs directed at nice, clean families, leading to growth without sacrifice. They want their organization to become bigger and bigger, even as their God becomes smaller and smaller. John the Apostle said to the church, to Christians, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever had the Holy Spirit get nosy with you? Poke around in your heart? You just kind of expected to hear some nice little message, encouragement, great, I feel good. Or you read some book and you don't know what's going to happen as you turn the page to a next chapter and suddenly the Holy Spirit gets your heart and goes, boom. And it's like, ah. Uh, and you, you, want, you wish somebody was next to you so you could nudge them and say, I think this is for you. But clearly the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on something in your life and he's saying, I love you so much. Now get rid of that. Remove that from your life and follow me. Turn from that. We may not like the feeling, but if we follow it through, it's blessed. A.W. Tozer said, Until a man has gotten into trouble with his heart, he is not likely to get out of trouble with God. There's a fourth and final stage of this revival. They returned to God. The end of verse 3, he says, And prepare your hearts. For the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And then again in verse 4, they got rid of the Baals and the Ashereths, and they served the Lord only. This is the other half of repentance. Repentance means to turn from what you know is wrong, but then to turn to God and walk with him. A full turn. Not just, not going to smoke, not going to chew, not going to go with girls that do. I'm going to stop doing bad things. Well, start doing the right things. Charles Finney, the revivalist, said, Revival is nothing more than a new obedience to God. Obeying Him, returning, serving Him. Now, this returning to God included a few things. It included a confession of their sins. In verse 6, they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Pouring out of water was highly symbolic of I'm pouring out my heart. I'm sorry for my sin. I acknowledge that I've hurt you, God. And in humility, I'm pouring out my life. Now, while some people would look at that and say, Oh, that's such low self-esteem. The Bible would call that a good, healthy dose of humble repentance. They were humble before God. It was beautiful. Next, it included prayer and fasting. In verse 5, Samuel said, Gather all of Israel to Mizpah. I will pray to the Lord for you. He does that in verse 8 and 9. And then again in verse 6, they fasted that day. Prayer and fasting. If you want to study the great revivals of the past and find out how do you get one of those, you have to go to prayer. For instance, in 1830, I mentioned that 30,000 people were converted to Christ in Rochester, New York, under the preaching of Charles Finney. But Charles Finney and his group discovered that it was because there was one man who, though he never attended the meeting, stayed home and prayed for them throughout his entire ministry. 
1872, when Dwight Lyman Moody went to London, England and gave several crusade campaigns, he found they were very successful, unusually successful, and could trace the success to one invalid, a young girl who was bedridden, who stayed in her bed and prayed that God would send Moody to London. And he came. And the gospel was preached. Then there was Jonathan Edwards, one of the great intellects of early America. Jonathan Edwards gave an interesting sermon called, listen to this, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Not a a, a grace-filled sermon, to say the least. I mean, we'd look at that title and go, I'm not going to church that day. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was so successful. Scores of people came to Christ through that sermon. The interesting thing about it, Jonathan Edwards had bad eyesight, had to have his manuscript written out, and he held it so close to his eyes, the congregants could not even see his face. When he spoke, he had no voice in fluctuation. It was a monotone. And yet while he preached, people begged him to stop. Have mercy on us, Mr. Edwards, they cried as they were so touched by this sermon and so many gave their lives to Christ. It was discovered that there was a church in Enfield, Massachusetts. In hearing that God was pouring out His blessing in other parts, they became afraid that perhaps God in His anger would pass them by. So before Edwards gave the sermon, the night before, they stayed in their church and they prayed throughout the night that God would bring revival. And God sent a great awakening to that message. Maybe God will stir up some of our hearts. Without a program, without, we're going to meet 5 o'clock for a prayer meeting, spontaneously where you'll get together in homes, you'll pray in kinships, with neighbors, with friends, or perhaps come to our once a month tonight prayer meeting before communion that will have more than 10 people or 20 people who will be praying that God would revive them and this church and this country and this city. Could be. But prayer and fasting were part of it. And finally, we notice that phrase, serve the Lord only. They were exclusive in serving God. And notice how Samuel phrases it. He said, prepare your hearts. Prepare your hearts to serve God only. The idea that it's implied is a reasoned, calculated decision to be holy, to be singular in my purpose, of serving God. Now, if these elements are in place, restlessness, reception to the Word of God, renouncing that which displeases God, and making God number one, you'll have revival. But you know where it begins? With us. It begins with God's people. These are God's people. I've given this sermon an interesting title, How to Start Your Own Revival. And you might look at that and say, how glib, how simplistic. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Gypsy Smith, the revivalist, was once asked, how do you start a revival? He said, very simple. Go home. Go to your room. Get on your knees. Take a piece of chalk and draw a circle around you. And then begin praying that God would revive what's on the inside of that circle. When God has answered your prayers, revival is on. It begins with you, one person. Revive us, O Lord, was the cry of the psalmist. Revive your work in the midst of years, was the cry of the prophet. Is it our cry? 
you think this nation needs a revival? Of course you do. In the spirit of that, I want to close with a commentary by radio personality Paul Harvey. It was on one of his programs one day. This is what he said. Man, oh man, they won't invite Pastor Joe to the Kansas State Legislature again. They invited Pastor Joe Wright of Wichita Central Christian Church to deliver the invocation. And he told God on them. Now God knows what they've been up to. No sooner had their guest chaplain concluded his prayer than three politicians on the legislature were on their feet at the microphones protesting. He can't talk like that about us. Representative Delbert Gross considered the invocation gross, calling it divisive, sanctimonious, and overbearing. Representative David Haley called it blasphemous and ignorant. Representative Sabrina Standifer echoed the indignation. What in the world did Pastor Joe say in Topeka that day that incited the righteous wrath of three politicians in Hayes in Kansas City? I've secured the entire text of the prayer so you can evaluate it for yourself. Here's the prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness, to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that's exactly what we've done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your name in the name of moral pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and we've called it a lottery. We have neglected the need of those who are in need and we've called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. In the name of choice, we've killed our unborn. In the name of right to life, we have killed abortionists. We have neglected to discipline our children and we've called it political savvy. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it taxes. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers. We've called it enlightenment. Search us, O God. Know our hearts today. Try us and see if there's any wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who have been sent here by the people of Kansas and who have been ordained by you to govern this great state. Grant them your wisdom to rule and may their decisions direct us to the center of your will. I ask this in the name of your Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Wow! What a prayer! Boy, if enough people prayed that from their hearts. If enough people were excited about that. I'll tell you, those uh, politicians were not. How can he talk about us that way? Well, it begins with us, does it not? We look within... And we say, oh, Lord, revive us. Do it to us. Start with us. Father, we pray that you would breathe life into your people, into this city, into this state, into this country, and then into this world. Lord, I pray that there has been an erosion, a slow leak, spiritual entropy, I pray we would return 
to our first love. I pray we would be receptive more than ever before to the Word of God. Create a restlessness, Lord, in in us and in people around us that can only be satiated by truth from heaven. And then, Lord, as we put away that which you're saying get rid of, and we serve you only, exclusively, wholeheartedly, Lord, we'll be happier than ever. We'll be holier than ever. And it's going to make a difference in lives around us. We want to be movers and shakers for your kingdom. We want people to know God has been in our midst because he's been such a part of our lives. Let that happen, Lord. It can. Nothing's impossible with you. In Jesus' name, amen.